Uh, well, let's jump into that passage, so keep that, um, that passage open in uh, uh, the book of Colossians. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, was, uh, I take, took a couple of uh, other church leaders with me to the UK, and uh, I was doing the kind of tourist thing with them around London for a day, and one of the things they wanted to go to was the Cabinet War Rooms, which is the underground bunker uh, where Winston Churchill and his war cabinet sort of led the war effort uh, throughout World War II. And so we were going through this exhibit, and uh, there was something that really struck me uh, that I, I really enjoyed. There were the sort of propaganda posters that they put up. And so there, this is a great one of, of Winston Churchill saying, let's go forward together. Uh, and then there's another one. Um, this is actually one of my favorite quotes of all time. This is actually a summary of it. Uh, but Churchill said, never on the field of human history has so much been owed by so many to so few. Um, and he's talking about those who sacrificed themselves uh, in the course of the war. But then there were a couple that I came across that were a little bit funny. Um, so this next one, the kitchen is the key to victory, eat less bread. <laughs> Which I thought the Atkins diet could use that. Like they should, they should have that. Uh, the kitchen, you know, eat less bread. And then this one, we want your kitchen waste. Uh, and then it says in there like, you know, give us your kitchen waste, but make sure there's no glass in it. Um, and I just, I, I like the pig. I like, he's just kind of like, that's right. I'm getting your food. I'm like, I just love that about it. Um, anyway, these posters were a way of uh, helping the whole nation set their minds and their hearts on supporting the war effort. Uh, and, and what they were trying to say is that every single man, woman, or child could take part in overcoming their enemy. But in order to do that, in order to succeed on the battlefield, they needed to get the entire nation, not just the soldiers, but the whole nation's hearts and minds set on victory. And uh, the idea that we're going to talk about today is, is, is quite similar, actually. Um, only it's not to win a war. It's about how to become spiritually mature, which I guess in a sense really is how to win a war. It's just winning a war against sin and selfishness and pride and our spiritual enemy. And the way that we've been saying as a church that, that we can do that, the way that we become spiritually mature, what we've been talking about is these repeated activities that we would do day by day by day by day, week by week by week, for month after month, year after year. That engaging in these same spiritual activities over time would cause us to become spiritually mature. And so the way that we've uh, been putting that is talking about it like it's a well-worn path that we would walk every single day at home, that we did every week at church, and that we would do it month after month, year after year. And the more that we walk down that path, the more that we go in that direction, the longer we walk that path, the more spiritually mature we'll become. Uh, the more we'll be able to overcome pride, the more we'll be able to overcome selfishness and lust and anger and greed and racism and bigotry and all of those things. And so the way that we've uh, sort of laid out for us as a church to walk this well-worn path is uh, what's called a liturgy. And uh, so that's what we've been talking about is, you know, Emmy's been walking us through our regular Sunday liturgy. And what we're doing over these few weeks is actually talking about what is that? Why do we do that? What does that mean? Uh, and so liturgy is very simply, it's just an order of worship. It's actually how a, an individual person or a family uh, sitting in their living room or around a kitchen table or a church gathered together actually actively sets their hearts and their minds on Christ. That's what a liturgy is. Uh, and so what we've been doing over these past few weeks is looking at the liturgy that we use here at Christ Church. And again, our liturgy that we use is nothing novel and new. And the reason why I've called it the well-worn path is because actually our liturgy are the same four things that Christians have been doing for almost two millennia. 
Uh, we just put our own language to it. Um, it's this four-part liturgy that churches all across the world have used for centuries and are using even today. And it's based on passages like Isaiah 6, which we looked at about a month ago. And it has these four parts to it, just like Isaiah's experience uh, in the heavenly throne room in Isaiah 6. And drawn on paper, here's what the liturgy looks like. It's one of my drawings. Um, I know some of you are actually animators, and it's, you know, it's embarrassing that I put these things up. But um, I did draw that throne, by the way. I did that. Was like, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's not true. I traced the throne. I traced it, but I did draw it. I just traced it over. When I was a kid, I, would, I got those tracing books, and I would, like, would trace Garfield, and I'd show my mom. She'd like, wow, you're an amazing artist. That's what that is. Anyway, um, this is what our, our liturgy sort of looks like on paper. And so it begins with that throne. The throne is the idea that we're looking up, just like Isaiah did. We're seeing God highly exalted in all of his glory, all of his holiness. Looking up, seeing God in his glory and his holiness. And then that down arrow that comes down, that's the second part. That's looking down. And that is to confess our sins, to bring our laments and our petitions before God. It's actually seeing ourselves rightly as sinners who have rebelled against God and his law. And then the third part of the liturgy is that arrow that, that comes back up. That's being raised up. And, and the idea there is that we're raised up by God. We're forgiven on the basis of God's grace and mercy. That he exercised through Christ's substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And that's being raised up. And then the final arrow that kind of takes off over the throne, that's being sent out. So we're being sent out by God to tell others about his grace and his mercy through Jesus. And so each week we've been looking in detail at one of these four parts of our liturgy, one of these four postures of up, down, up, and out. And this week we're looking at the third part, and so that's being raised up. Um, and there's probably not a better place to look at this idea than in Colossians chapter 3, which is the, the passage we had read to us. And so we're going to look at this part of our liturgy being raised up. We'll do it in three parts. So part one, there's a spiritual truth. So we're going to talk about a, a, the doctrine of it. Part two, there's a physical symbol. And then part three, the day by day. So what does it look like to be raised up day by day? So the spiritual truth or the doctrine. Number two, the physical symbol. And part three, the day by day. So let's jump in part one. And this is where we're going to sort of get into the weeds of some doctrine here. So stick with me. And we read uh, from Colossians chapter 3. But if you still have that open, why don't you flip back over to Colossians chapter 1. Because what Paul had been doing up to this point, up to the point where our passage is, is he's been expounding on doctrine. And he's been expounding specifically on the doctrine about Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. And so earlier, back in Colossians chapter 1, it says this, and actually you're going to see the four parts of our liturgy working itself out in this book, because first in chapter 1, there's a looking up. So look at chapter 1, verse 15, and look at this description of God the Son, Jesus Christ. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And skip down to verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And as you read that, as you hear those words, it ought to make your heart leap for joy. It ought to make your heart soar. And so that's the looking up. But then reading on, there's a looking down, verse 20. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so now you have the exalted one, the one who is the image, the very image of the invisible God. Now you have him shedding his own blood on, on the cross for sinners, lowered down to the most shameful of deaths and then lowered down even more into the grave. And so there again, you have this pattern. It's all over scripture, up, down. But then as you read on, look at chapter two, look down at chapter two and at verse 12, it's talking about what God the Father has done. It says that God the Father raised him, raised Christ, raised him from the dead. And so here is Jesus Christ, God the Son, raised up from the dead. And ultimately we learn, not only is he raised up from the dead, but he is raised up, he is ascended all the way to the throne room of heaven where he is given the name that is above every name and he is highly exalted. Remember that he, in Revelation chapter five, we looked at a few weeks ago, he gets there and thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, they all erupt in praise. And so he's raised up. And so this is actually the basic biblical doctrine about Jesus Christ, God the Son. He is the exalted one who humbled himself, was lowered all the way to the grave, and then who was raised up and highly exalted. And again, just hearing that doctrine, knowing that doctrine ought to be enough to make our hearts sing. And like we could just stop there and go back to praise and worship. Except as you read through Colossians, there's more. There is so much more that this doctrine about Jesus Christ is actually applied to you and me. It's not just a, a heady idea. It's actually something that is practical. Because actually all biblical doctrine is practical. Because look at the rest of chapter 2, verse 12. Now he shifts. He says, he's talking about you now. You, having been buried with him in baptism, in which this baptism, you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, here's what that's saying. What that's saying is when Jesus Christ was lowered into the grave and then when Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead, what that's saying is that you were lowered in the grave. You were raised up from the dead. And again, what this is actually talking about is, is, is a, a, another doctrine called our union with Christ, that to become a Christian, the very nature of what it means to become a Christian is the nature of being united with Christ. It, the nature of it is actually, it's, it's like a marriage or it's like an adoption. That when a couple becomes married or when a child is adopted, the two parties, you know, the husband and the wife or the parents and the child, they are so united together that all that belongs to one party now belongs to the other. And all that the other party brings into the relationship now belongs to the other. And so all that's the groom belongs to the bride. All that's the bride's belongs to the groom. You know, the, the parent's home, everything they have now belongs to this adopted child. And all of that, that's the picture that's here when it's all packed into that little word with in verse 12. Do you see that little word in there? In verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, it says you were buried with him and you were raised with him. All of that is encapsulated just in that one little word with. It's union language. It's, it's a language of being utterly and completely and essentially united together now as one. And what that means then is Christ's burial is our burial. And Christ's resurrection from the dead is now our resurrection. 
And so therefore, everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a Christian, everyone who is united with Christ in this way is also raised up with Christ. So much so that in other places in the New Testament, it actually goes on to say that we are seated with him in the heavenlies right now. That is how united to him we are. But just look at the result of being raised up here in Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 13. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And so to be buried with Christ in his death and to be raised up with Christ in his resurrection is to have your sins forgiven. It is to have your debt canceled. It is to have it taken away. It is to have it nailed to the cross. And it is to be made alive. God made you alive with Christ. There's that union language again. That if he is alive and you are united to him, you are alive. And it's understanding that doctrine that is essential to understand this part of our liturgy. So back to talking about our liturgy, about being raised up. We have to understand that doctrine in order to understand this part, this posture in our liturgy. And here's why. It is in the raising up where we see and we experience the love of God lavished on us. If this doctrine wasn't already practical enough, Now what this is saying is that the very same love that God the Father has for Jesus Christ, God the Son, that he's had for all of eternity, that he has been for all eternity past, pouring out his love on Jesus Christ, God the Son. All of that love, he lavishes on you. All of that love now belongs to you because all that belongs to Christ belongs to you. And so to be united to Christ is to receive the same love. In John 17, before Jesus is arrested, he prays to God the Father. And he says, God, I pray that you will love them with the same love that you have loved me from the foundation, from the beginning. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, it says this. We can put this one on the screen. It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with what? The riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And in 1 John 3, 1, we looked briefly at this very same verse last week. It says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so to be raised up with Christ is to be loved with the same love that Christ is loved with. And so this is why we walk this well-worn path day by day by day, week by week by week, month after month, year after year, because the more that we center our lives on this doctrine, on this truth, that the highly exalted, glorious, holy one, in spite of our sin, came down. 
And if we're honest before him and we confess our sins to him, he raises us up with the same power that he raised Christ from the dead. And he loves us with the same love that he has for Christ. And so the more that we center ourselves on that truth, the more spiritually mature we become. That's how this works. It's actually very simple. It's not really complicated at all. The more we center ourselves on that truth, the more spiritually mature we we become. The more confident, the less anxious. And so that's why our liturgy goes like this. It's up to worship, it's down to confess, but then the third piece, the third posture is that we are raised up. Now, there's a, a physical symbol, a picture that Jesus gave us to enact this idea of being buried with Christ and being raised with him. And that is the symbol of baptism. I don't know if you saw that in chapter 2, verse 12, but it says, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, still talking about baptism, you were also raised with him. And so that's part two, the physical symbol. And the image that Paul has in mind here is baptism by full immersion. Now, this might sound weird, okay? And in fact, it is kind of weird. It's meant to be weird. It's meant to be something that is, is striking, But the act of a person, so what a Christian is meant to do, the act of a person who uh, becomes a Christian, they are to be baptized. And the picture of that is to be fully immersed, to be dunked underwater and brought back up. It's an odd image, but it's meant to be. The way that we do that here in our church is we have a little pool. It's it's sitting in the back room. It looks like a really long hot tub. It actually gets warm like a hot tub. And so there's nothing magical about it. That's sort of to take just some of the magic out of it. It's just a pool of water. And so the act itself doesn't accomplish anything, but that act of being plunged underwater and brought back up communicates something. It communicates something to the person being baptized. It communicates something to those watching the person being baptized. And what that baptism does is it actually communicates the doctrine that we just described of the person going down into the water and coming back up. And the picture is this, that as the waters close over a person's entire body, they are immersed completely under the waters, closing their eyes, ceasing to breathe, right? Holding their breath. It's as if the person has died and been buried. But then, as the person is raised up out of the water, opening their eyes, drawing breath once again. It's as as if they've risen to new life. That's the picture. And the idea is that part, the the part of this person that, uh, that died is the part of the person that is their sinful nature. That person has died and now the person emerging from the water is a new person. And that's the picture. It's that doctrine enacted with some water in a pool. Now, if you're a Christian, in other words, if that doctrine that says you are united with Christ, that everything that's his is yours and you've been forgiven, meaning you're receiving the same love that Christ receives, that God the Father lavishes on you, if that doctrine is true of you, if you put your faith and your trust in that, and you have not gone through that picture, that symbol of baptism, then I want to invite you to do that. Again, there's nothing magical about it, but it communicates to yourself and to others around you that your life is now united to Christ, centered around him. That Jesus is now the center of your life. And so this is something that every Christian, Jesus commanded every Christian to do this. 
to do this one time as a physical symbol of the spiritual truth that you are united with Christ and with his church. And so if you're ready to do that, then uh, you can come and talk to me after the service on that card that Emmy mentioned earlier. You can just write in the comment section, baptism. And we'd love to do that. So that's the physical symbol of this part of our liturgy of being raised up. So we talked about the doctrine. Now we've looked at the physical symbol. Uh, but the reality is, is you're not being baptized every day. Uh, you only do that once. And so then what's the day by day? Well, that's part three, the day by day. And so as we follow this, this thought that if this is true of Christ, if he was buried and raised, and since that's true of you, that you were buried with him and raised with him, then here is the day by day, this well-worn path, this long obedience in the same direction. Now in chapter three, verse one. So turn back to that. Colossians chapter three, verse one. It says, since then, right? So since that doctrine is true of Christ and true of you, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so what do we do day by day by day by day, week by week, month after month, year after year? What is it that we do? Paul says we set our hearts in verse 1. And in verse 2, he says we set our minds on the things above, where Christ is. And by the way, here's how we know this is a day-by-day setting of our hearts and minds. The form of the verb that Paul uses, both in verse 1 and verse 2, in the original language, where he says, set your heart and set your mind on things above. The, the form of that verb, it actually means continuous action, like without ceasing. Uh, it's an ongoing idea. So continually, like you could translate it this way, continually, without stopping, set your heart. And continually, without stopping, set your mind on Christ. And what we've been discovering through this entire series is that a liturgy is actually a way of setting your heart and your mind. Um, some of you will know that after I graduated from college, which is more than 20 years ago now, um, that dawned on me this week, uh, three, three friends and I rode bicycles across America. Um, it was 3,509.1 miles, not that we were counting. Um, it took us 65 days to do it. And it's not an understatement to say that it was hard. In fact, it was extremely difficult. At some points, uh, very, very difficult because mostly we did it in uh, really stupidly. We, we went the wrong direction. Uh, so if you're smart about this, you might look at like, you know, geography and realize that things tend downhill from the West Coast to the East Coast. And if you look at weather patterns, you might recognize that wind tends to blow from West to East. Well, we went from east to west, which meant we were going into the wind and uphill the whole way. And it's not an understatement to say that it was hard. And we learned early on, uh, maybe about two weeks into the trip, to stop the conversation. Like, we'd meet people who were going west to east as we were going east to west. And so you'd kind of meet up, you'd see each other, you'd stop and chat and share stories, and you'd ask them what's up on the road ahead, and they'd ask you. And they, inevitably, we'd be like, how many miles a day are you doing? Because we're trying to figure out if we're doing a good job or not. And they'd always be like, oh, yeah, I'm doing like 100, 120 miles a day. And, we'd, and they'd be like, how about you? We'd be like, because <laughs> on a good day, we could do 65 miles. And so they were doing double the amount that we were doing. And so on the toughest of days, 
on those days where we literally were going uphill and into the wind, or we're climbing 14 miles over a mountain pass. I needed to set my heart and my mind on the finish line. You know, we were gonna finish this ride on Whidbey Island in Washington State, which is in the Puget Sound. And uh, the whole idea of the trip was we actually rode from one guy's house to another. Um, and so it's like when you were kids, you know, you're like, you wanna ride bikes? Sure, let's ride from this guy's house to that guy's house. That's literally what we did. And so we were finishing at my friend Craig's house. And on those tough days when we had the wind in our faces and we're climbing a 14-mile mountain pass, I'd ride up next to Craig, whose house we were riding to, and I'd, I'd be like, hey, tell me, about, tell me about your street that you live on. What does it look like? Tell me about the houses on it. Tell me about your driveway. What's your driveway like? He'd be like, it's a mile long. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> tell me about the front of your house. Tell me what the showers are like. I can't wait. <laughs> And I needed to do that. I had to do that. Why? Because I needed to set my heart and my mind on the end, on the goal, on the finish line. And if I could set my mind there, if I could meditate on that, if I could think on that while I'm climbing a mountain pass or while there's, it's been hours and hours of just the wind in my ears fighting against the 30 mile an hour headwind, if I set my mind there, I could keep going. That is a picture of what Paul is saying here when he says continually, Without ceasing, set your hearts and your minds on things above, where Christ is. This is the day by day, the well-worn path. This is what it looks like to be raised up. This is, this is it. It is to set your mind on heaven, on Christ who is in heaven. That's what it looks like. And then Paul actually, very helpful, he shows us the difference then between the character of the person who sets their mind on Christ and the person who set their mind here on earth. He shows us the difference, and that's verses 5 to 14, and we don't have time to look at it in detail. Um, but very briefly, the person whose mind is set here on earth, look at their character, look at their life, chapter 3, verse 5. This is talking about these things in such a way that this is what is alive in them, this is what is active in them, this is what is in their hearts, this is what is coming out of them. It's so living and active in them. Chapter 3, verse 5, your mind is set here on earth, then here's what's alive in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then verse 8, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language on your lips. And then verse 9, lying. And then verse 11, racism and bigotry and classism. The person whose mind is set here on earth, this is what is alive in them. This is what is living in them. And therefore, this is what comes out of them. And so this is the opposite of spiritual maturity. But look at the character of a person whose mind is set on Christ. Look at what is living in this person in verse 12. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, forgiveness. Verse 15, unity through love, right? The opposite of racism and bigotry and classism. These are the things that are living and active in the person whose mind is set on Christ. This is what is alive in them. Ultimately, what we're talking about here is the life of Christ, that Christ's life is actually working itself out in them. Because what better describes the character of the life of Christ than these words, compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, unity, love. 
And so this is the very definition of the life of a person who is becoming spiritually mature, that you are possessing these qualities in increasing measure. So how do you get that spiritual maturity? Well, it's through continually, day by day, week by week, from month after month, year after year, setting your mind continually above. In other words, being raised up. And so this is why our liturgy is so important. It is regularly, daily, weekly, causing us to walk through these four postures of up, down, up, and out. It's a way of setting our minds on Christ, on making Christ the most central person in our lives. And then to help us out, uh, let, let me just apply this, because the Apostle Paul actually gives us three things to help us set our hearts and our minds on Christ. And these are in verses 15 to 17. Again, we're not going to look at these in great detail, but look, um, but look at this. Because actually, if you look closely, you'll see that in both verse 15 and verse 16, there's the word let. Right? You see, let the peace of Christ. And then verse 16, let the message of Christ. So you see that word there, let. It's there twice. In other words, what that's saying is that there are two things here. It says, let the peace of Christ rule over us. So it's saying there are two things here. There's community and the word of God. These two things ought to rule over us. And then there's a third thing to help us set our mind on Christ, and that is thanksgiving. And that's mentioned three times. And so we know it's important. If something gets mentioned three times in like just three sentences, you know that's really important. Okay? So thanksgiving is mentioned three times. So there's three things here to help us set our minds above. There's the church or community. There's the word of God. And there's thanksgiving. And these are the three things that will help us most to set our hearts and minds above. And so the first, just a little bit of detail, the first one there is community, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace. Now that's a really nice verse. You could put that verse on a coffee mug, right? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Um, but actually what Paul has in mind is uh, your local church. He's not talking about peace generally. He's talking about peace and unity within your local church. And we know he's talking about that for two things, because first he says, right in the context of that, uh, let this peace rule in your heart since or because you are members of one unified body. And so now we know he's not talking about personal peace, but a corporate peace. But also the verb that Paul uses, I love this, he borrowed this, this word from sports, from the world of sports. And the verb there for the word rule is actually the word umpire. And so he literally says, let the peace of Christ act as an umpire in your hearts. In other words, making sure that you remain unified. Now, what this is getting at is this, that one of the main things that will allow a person to keep their heart and their mind set on Christ above, in other words, to continually be raised up, one of the main things is your local church. What this is getting at is to saying, to keep your mind set above, you must be in unity with your church. Put that another way. There is no such thing as a spiritually mature person who is not meaningfully connected to a local church. It does not exist. The peace of Christ will not rule in your heart. Spiritually mature people are contributing members of local churches and spiritually immature people are not. That's what this is saying. Now, why is that? Well, you need the members of your church to encourage you when you're struggling, to challenge you when you're disobeying, to pray for you when you're sick, to teach you when you're ignorant. And so 
if you're not meaningfully engaging with your church, meaningfully, regularly worshiping, serving others in some way, spending time with other members of the church throughout the week, praying for people in the church, if that is not part of your life, then how could you ever expect to become spiritually mature? And I'm sorry if that's challenging to some of you, but I can tell you from experience that the person who engages consistently with the church in these ways nearly always becomes spiritually mature. And that the flip side of that is true as well. The person who thinks the church isn't important to their faith, who keeps the church to the side, they almost always fall away. And I've grieved so many people who've done that. Let me put it this way. The church is the body of Christ. That's the metaphor that the Bible often uses. That's the metaphor of this passage. But to reject the body is to reject the head. Christ is the head. So that's the first thing to help us keep our hearts and our mindset on Christ. And the second, then, is the word of God. Verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now, here's what I really want you to see here. That this message of Christ, in other words, what this is talking about is biblical teaching. It's not actually talking about the formal preaching of the word. So it's not talking about what I'm doing right now. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Uh, that is very important. The preaching of the word is important. It's covered extensively in other places in the Bible. There's at least 97 references to preaching in the New Testament. But here, Paul is actually talking about the word dwelling among us as we teach and admonish one another. And the word there for teach is actually just the ordinary word for instruction. And the word there for admonish is actually the word for giving advice. Now, very practically, this is actually what we do when we meet together on Thursday nights. The word of God dwelling richly among us as we are teaching and counseling one another with the word of God. That's what a Bible study is. So a Bible study is actually Colossians 3.16 lived out. But keep looking at this passage because it's also what we're doing when we sing songs and hymns together and we read scripture together on Sunday mornings. Because look at the rest of verse 16. It says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another, but also through singing psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. And I love this. I'm, just think about this picture that he has here. He's talking about the word of Christ dwelling among you richly. Okay, this is the idea here. When we are singing, we are in unison, filling up the room with the very truth about God. It is as if that truth has come to dwell among us as we sing and we read together. And so we don't just sing to fill the time before the sermon. And we don't do it just to sort of incite a particular emotion. And we don't do responsive readings to be weird. We do it because it is a way of causing the message of Christ to dwell richly among us. All those voices in harmony, singing and saying, filling the room. And so when we sing, I want to encourage you, sing boldly. It's okay, sing badly. I sing badly. That's why nobody sits in front of me, ever. But sing boldly. And when we read, read loudly. I know this stuff just seems ordinary. It's singing a song. It's reading some stuff. I know it seems ordinary. I know it does. 
I know there's nothing novel about it. I know it's just painful. I mean, we print it on pieces of paper. It's just ordinary. But every time we do that on a Sunday, we sing those songs, we read those liturgies. Every time we gather on a Thursday to study the Bible, Every time you meet up with a friend to encourage them or you call them or text them throughout the week and you're counseling them, you're encouraging them. Every time you do that, the message of Christ is dwelling among you richly. And so what seems so painfully ordinary is actually significant. It's so spiritually significant beyond what you could imagine. It's as if when we do that, when we gather together, when we serve one another, when we are unified with one another, when we sing together, when we encourage one another, it is as if we are planting little seeds of the word of God into each other's hearts that will one day grow up into a plant and bear fruit. And so how do we set our minds and our hearts above? Well, there's the church, there's the word, and then thirdly, the third thing that helps us keep our hearts and our minds raised up on Christ is thanksgiving. I said before, Paul mentions it three times, once in verse 15, again in verse 16, and then finally in verse 17. Thanksgiving, it's a form of praising God for what he has done. And it's appropriate to thank God for what he did through Jesus' life, through his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven. We want to be thanking God for that all the time. But it's also appropriate to give thanks for what he is doing in our lives today. To thank him for his provision for our needs for our homes, for the food that we have on our table, for our clothing. To thank him for answered prayers. It's appropriate to thank him for his general goodness, a beautiful sunset, for good weather, which depending on your persuasion could be sunshine or rain. But either way, to thank him for those things. And the reason is this, it's that thanksgiving helps us set our hearts and our minds on things above. And what we're doing, we're doing that is we're actually locating the provision for all of those things in the right place. You imagine if somebody gave you something and you thanked yourself. <laughs> or you thought, oh, how great am I to have received this thing? Now, Thanksgiving helps us locate the provision of those things in the right place. It keeps us ultimately from being curved in on ourselves, what we've been talking about for the last few weeks, believing that all that is good in our lives, like if you're curved in on yourself, you think everything good in your life, you brought it about. But instead, when we give thanks, we begin to be curved towards God. And giving thanks actually helps us to acknowledge what James said in James chapter one. We can put this on the screen too. It says, James chapter one, verse 16, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from where? Above coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, he has been a giver for eternity past. He is a giver today. He will always be a giver. And so we give thanks to the giver. And as we do that, it helps us to set our mind on him, on where all those gifts come from, from above. So the three things that help us set our heart and our minds on the things above, set our hearts on Christ. The three things that help raise us up in the gospel, the church, the word of God, and thanksgiving. This is our liturgy. This is why we do this. This is the well-worn path of the long obedience in the same direction towards spiritual maturity, looking up to praise God for his glory and his holiness, 
Then looking down to confess our sins and to lament all that is broken in our world, we are raised up in, in Christ through the good news of the gospel, and then we're sent out to live in light of the grace and the mercy that we've received and, and to tell others about it. And the reason we're even doing this series is because what we're attempting to be is a, is a people in the middle of one of the most individualistic, curved-in-on-itself, fast-paced cities on the planet. And we're trying to be a group of people who are slowing down to walk this well-worn path towards spiritual maturity together. No longer curved in on ourselves, but with our hearts and our minds set continually above on Christ so that we would gain his character. Compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and unity and love. And that's what it is to become spiritually mature. And that's what it is that we're aiming to become day by day, week by week, for months and months and years and years to come as we walk this well-worn path together. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help in that. Our Father, we thank you for this well-worn path that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that that doctrine would not only make our hearts sing, but Lord, make us want to set our hearts and our minds on you that we have been buried with Christ, that we've been raised up with him. Lord, may we set our minds and our hearts on that as we go day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, ultimately becoming spiritually mature. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.